In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we keep you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we're looking towards the Church of England, towards Anglicanism, and discovering the story of former Bishop Nazir Ali of the Church of England, who's now become Father Nazir Ali, uh, who's joined the Anglican Ordinariate. And welcome aboard to the Catholic Toolbox, Father. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you. And uh, I, I really am excited to hear uh, the deeper uh, longing for the truth that you had, uh, why you, you, you turned, <laughs> crossed the Tiber, in a sense, uh, <laughs> and a little bit about your story and, and the, the, the inspiration that you are to many people. I myself attend... Uh, many times the Anglican Ordinariate. We, we, we love the liturgy. We, yes. we love the community here in Sydney, Australia. And uh, I'm very keen to hear your story. Great. So, Do give my greetings to them. I think that's the first thing to say. Um, but um, yes, um, the story is a long one. But for many years, uh, I was a member of the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, which had been charged by Pope Paul VI and Archbishop Michael Ramsey of Canterbury uh, to remove all the obstacles to unity that there were between the two churches. And um, I discovered as time went on that whenever we arrived at some landmark agreement on the nature of the Eucharist or on ministry and ordination, uh, or an authority in the church, or the Blessed Virgin Mary, or you know many other things, moral questions, that someone in the Anglican communion then went and did something the opposite. Um, and so I realized that there was no way of making decisions in the Anglican communion that would stick everywhere. Uh, that, that was uh, the first thing. The second was that uh, I began to realize as the churches all, of course, particularly in the Western world, um, face uh, complex questions uh, that have been raised by modernity and postmodernity, that Anglicanism had no body of teaching um, to um, counter this. Uh, and if the faithful needed to know what to believe in certain circumstances about 
a particular matter having to do with the beginning of life or the end of life or the nature of marriage uh, or social justice or freedom uh, of faith, they had nowhere to, to look. They had to sort of invent these things themselves uh, each time a question arose. And the third, of course, was the absence of any kind of teaching authority, which could from time to time, when necessary, intervene to say to the faithful, this is the way to go and not that. So I think those were the reasons uh, for my um, wanting a church that had those things. Uh, did you, uh, at what point did you realize it was problematic that in the Church of England, in the Anglican Communion, they, they very much voted on many, many issues. At what point did you realize that that was a problem that couldn't be a direction of the truth? Um, yes, I think that's right. And also, I mean, it's not only that it was a problem, it's an ecclesiological problem, but it's also a practical problem because what it does is it, it gives an entry to activists who have particular access to grind about uh, uh, human identity, about gender issues, about um, the nature of marriage, uh, about sexuality, and so on. And um, there's no end to these um, causes, as it were. And because the church has no clear stance, no clear teaching, uh, no sense of belonging to a church down the ages and across the world, uh, it is prey to this kind of activism. Um, so that also, I think, contributed. Um, as you say, I mean, if you have voting as a way of making decisions and, you know, you become uh, more exposed to that kind of activism, but also uh, for many years, even after the Reformation, the Church of England, for example, made a clear distinction between the teaching authority of bishops uh, and uh, the, the part that other people had to play. Uh, but gradually, under pressure of this kind of populist um, democratic um, idea, it began to lose uh, that sense, and I think it's almost it's completely gone now. Um, so yeah, that's also a danger. I want to talk a little bit about apostolic succession and the Anglican yes. Union. Now, you mm. had to be when you decided to become Catholic from the Anglicanism. Yes. You're Anglican bishop, supposedly. The Church, we do not recognize the validity of the holy orders of the Anglican Communion. Uh, at what point did you realize that about the validity of the so-called apostolic succession that they had, uh, which they didn't really have, and you had to be reordained to become a priest? Uh, well, us yeah, theologically I mean, and experience-wise. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, very good question. Um, well, I, again, um, it's a process. Um, the, the, the first thing is that uh, whilst Anglicans were agreeing with the Catholic Church and indeed with Orthodox churches about the nature of apostolic succession, they were at the same time arriving at agreements with Protestant churches that um, didn't see it as so important or tried to reinterpret it 
in a in a very radical way. Um, for instance, uh, to regard it simply as the continuity of the church in a particular place. Um, so I, and even as an Anglican bishop, I very often used to say, this is contradictory, you can't have it both ways. Um, I did uh, for many years defend the Anglican position that um, Anglicans had preserved a, a true succession even during the turbulence of the 16th century. Um, and um, uh, that um, many of the replies that were given by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York to Apostolic Curae, which said the, the, the papal uh, judgment that Anglican orders were null and, and void, so that the, the, those arguments had some strength. However, Um, yeah, I've got to recollect. So the validity of Anglican order. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, yes, what made me um, think again about these things was the, uh, the warnings that successive popes and other people in the Vatican were giving the Anglican Communion uh, that uh, the agreements that Archic had reached on ministry and ordination between the two churches would be jeopardized if the Anglican Communion and the Church of England in particular continued down the path of unilaterally ordaining women to the priesthood and then even more to the episcopate. Yeah. Um, so there was a window. I have an article in the Catholic Herald this month explaining all this. There was a window and it might have been possible for the Catholic Church to make some kind of fresh judgment on Anglican orders. But that was in the light of the agreement that Archic had reached. But that was jeopardized by unilateral decision-making. And I remember uh, I was chairing an important commission in that time to which the Catholic Bishops Conference here uh, in England and Wales uh, made a, a submission asking how Anglicans could claim to share the ministry of the Catholic and Orthodox churches and then make such an important change unilaterally. Yeah. So yeah. whatever may have been the case in the past, uh, I think by making this change in the very eyes of the churches from whom they looked uh, for recognition, um, they have now made that impossible. Uh, any such does it really have to do with the fact that Anglicanism after the after Henry the yeah. they sort of changed the theology of what they believe uh, the priesthood was and they didn't carry out with the valid manner the 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 apostolic succession unlike the Orthodox who did maintain the rights and the theology which uh, guaranteed their apostolic succession yeah, the rights are very different. And um, I think you could make a case that the Anglican rite uh, did intend to continue. I mean, in fact, the ordinal, the prayer book ordinal, says to the intent that we may continue these ministries. Uh, but the, it's not just what you intend to do, it's also what you actually do. 
Uh, and um, what has happened now is that whatever arguments may have been made for the validity of Anglican orders in the past, they can't be made now. So you may say that maybe at one point when the Reformation first started and at those stages, perhaps there were valid orders. They had valid episodes, but then over time, as things changed and the high and low Anglican movements happened, the invalidity became more. And now, due to the ordination of women, the understanding, which affects the theology, really. Um, yes, and it's true indeed. Uh, and also the ordination of women bishops. You see, I yeah. think that really does. Um, you know, completely changes the um, the whole argument. And by doing this unilaterally, Anglicanism has made a, a decision, while for many centuries claiming to be via media, sort of between the Catholic and Protestant positions, it has now chosen the way of liberal Protestantism. I want to talk a little bit about the point of your conversion, because it did receive a lot of media attention. You were possibly uh, the future head of the Church of England. Uh, you were seen that way in the media. And uh, what, at what point did you realize, or did you get to a point where you said, the Catholic Church is the true church, and I have to be in communion with her? Yes, I mean, I used to work for uh, Archbishop Robert Runcie, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, when questions arose of various kinds in different parts of the world, he would say to me, he would say, Michael, I am not the universal primate. There is only one universal primate. You know, this is the Archbishop of Canterbury saying <laughs> this about the Bishop of Rome. Really? And yes. Uh, and that uh, stuck with me. And he said, I don't want, I don't want to pretend to be the universal primate. So... If there is only one universal primate, the question is how one is to be in communion with such a primate. Uh, and of course, that primate also has to make it uh, possible for people to come into communion with him. Uh, that's an ongoing uh, thing that happens. Uh, Pope John Paul II and of course Pope Benedict did many things to make things possible. The ordinary the existence of the ordinariate, I mean, not perfect by any means, uh, and they need to develop and flourish, but uh, the provision was made um, to allow Anglicans to come into full communion with the See of Peter. Uh, and uh, Pope John Paul II wrote a very important encyclical, Utunum Sint, inviting Christ other Christians uh, to tell him how he could be an effective universal primate for them. Um, so yeah, these things continued and I hope to make some contribution to that in due course if I am asked to do so. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. The ordinariate was one of the best legacies of Pope Benedict XVI. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I, I remember when I was in grade 11 in school, um, Pope Benedict released the Apostolic Constitution, Anglicanorian Cobetius, and it, I just read it for the first time, and I thought, this is this is very smart. This is this is absolutely amazing. He filled a great need of people 
who wanted to become Catholic but maintain their Anglican tradition, but yes. become Catholic. Because yes. just like any other Eastern serious church in, in the Catholic yeah. church who came into communion, they weren't asked to leave their Byzantine uh, or, or, or any other tradition to bring that liturgy yeah. but become yeah. Catholic. So yes. let's talk a bit about the, the ordinary, the whole structure and, and what good do you think it's doing for, for Anglicans who want to become Catholic but not lose their identity? Yes, I think it was very important for me because, you know, I pointed out what the weaknesses of Anglicanism are, uh, but there are also strengths. And I mean, you already mentioned the beautiful liturgy, for example. Yes. Uh, I didn't want to lose that. I mean, I'm very happy with Novus Ordo when I have to celebrate Mass, but uh, I wouldn't want uh, to lose um, the Ordinariate's liturgy either. And I think that's a, a treasure that has been brought into the church, um, rightly so. I think um, the um, the Anglican commitment to a deep and critical but reverent study of the Bible is something that the wider church can learn from. Um, the, um, the model of ministry that seeks to minister to the wider community and not just the congregation. Uh, is also something that Anglicans can contribute to, uh, thinking about moral questions. I mean, the tradition in the Catholic Church, until the Second Vatican Council anyway, was that moral theology was done for the sake of the confessor in the confessional. Whereas Anglican moral theology was done much more in the, in the wider community. And I think that's something... Um, that the tradition can contribute hymnody i mean uh, the way in which i mean the way in which newman does theology is uh, profoundly valuable and profoundly different from some of the ways in which the schoolman did it so uh, i think there are a lot of things there which uh, pope benedict uh, was very kind to recognize i was involved in conversation with uh, the Vatican in those days as well. I mean, it's very interesting as well. Another character which I've noticed uh, as somebody who attends who attends both forms of the Roman Rite, the extraordinary yeah. form, the ordinary form. When we first discovered, my wife and myself, uh, well, I hadn't really discovered it because uh, I was involved in actually back in 2014. Um, uh, uh, I was the master of ceremonies for the first Anglican ordinary mass celebrated in Sydney. Oh, and many young people! It was many young people were excited to see this because where was that? Of, where was that? Where did it? That happen? was in St Benedict's in Broadway, Sydney. Right, right. And the ordinary at the time, I, I remember the liturgy was in ad experimentum at the time. Yeah. So yes, we had yeah. papers. We never really had like a set missile or, or a book. And uh, I remember that and, and how many young people, it was actually all young people that came because yeah. they recognised uh, the, the beauty of the Anglican tradition and wanted to see that liturgy in place. And, and also how it sort of compared as well to the extraordinary form of the, of the Roman Rite and the yes. Novus Ordo. And it was a beautiful harmony of both. If yes. you actually, and, and when I did take my wife the first time recently during the COVID lockdown uh, yeah. to experience the Anglican Ordinariate, her observation was this is 
in her opinion, this is what the, the Novus Ordo should look like. Yes. A little bit more. <laughs> and uh, we continue to, to get involved in the community and um, we're there twice a month and uh, uh, we go to the extra order. But it's a beautiful harmony, I think. Uh, yeah. if, you, if you come from the extra order, the traditional Latin mass and go to the Anglican Ordinary and, and the beauty of it. Um, so... Yeah, but I think that shows how much was actually preserved, you see. Because the reason that so many Catholics recognize these things in the Anglican liturgy shows how much of that liturgy was actually derived uh, from medieval sources, and indeed Eastern sources. Uh, so uh, Chrysostom and Basil were also influences on it. Well, that's interesting to know that uh, Chrysostom, mm -hmm. St. John Chrysostom, mm -hmm. was an influence yeah. on uh, let's talk oh, yeah. So the Anglican liturgy does have its origin in the Sarum Rite. Yes, and others and other influences, as I say, like Chrysostom and Basil. Um, so um, in the fifteen forty nine prayer book, particularly, the form of the Eucharistic prayer is very um, much influenced by by Eastern. Um, Eastern language, anyway. And I think another great heritage uh, thing that, that, that we, we, we learnt to appreciate through the Anglican Ordinary ourselves is the use of language. The, the, the old yes. English uh, usage yes. is tremendous. You know, it captures, captures a great beauty and emphasis on the truth that you don't, don't find in modern English. And also the great preaching. I mean, there's something, is there something about Anglic, uh, former Anglicans <laughs> in the church that makes them great preachers? Have you noticed something yeah. there? That's yes, yes, well, that's what I meant. That it's a way of tackling the Bible, which, uh, I mean, Novus Ordo has a lot of Bible reading in it, but it's not just that. It, you, just, you then have to open it out to the congregation to tell them what it means. And I think there is a long Anglican, good Anglican tradition of preaching, which again, is, is a contribution to the wider church. Okay, excellent. And now I want to go into three practical tools here on the Catholic mm. Box, three practical where people can take action with their faith mm. in this regard. What are three practical tools or, or things that people can do to start uh, experiencing the Anglican tradition, how it can help them with their faith and complement their faith as Catholics or as Anglicans looking at the Catholic faith? Yeah. Well, um, where Anglicans are concerned, I think the ordinariate exists as a kind of open invitation for people to return to communion with the Catholic Church in a way that respects their patrimony, all that is good and uh, authentic in that patrimony. Um, I think the Catholic Church needs to be uh, more welcoming, perhaps, to people. Um, and um, there is some learning to do on each side about that, uh, but that often happens after long periods of separation. Um, I think to learn how to pray, um, um, one of the things that we've been taught during this lockdown period, especially when the churches were closed, was how important it is to know the presence of Christ 
in the Eucharist and in the church as a way of prayer. Um, because if it's just a preaching hall, you know, if you, if you think of the church as just a preaching hall, um, then why should you pray there rather than anywhere else? So I think that's, that's something we can learn from the lockdown and from each other. Um, the, the importance of the sacraments, I mean, I've been for a long time dissatisfied with the Reformation position that there were really only two sacraments, baptism uh, and the Supper of the Lord, because... Um, that leaves people without the comfort of the other sacraments and the strengthening of the other sacraments, uh, which can be shown. I've just written an article in First Things, which show how the other sacraments are also gospel sacraments. You can't just limit it to baptism and the Eucharist. Um, so I think how to learn to use the sacraments for strengthening our faith, not in any kind of superstitious way, uh, but uh, really as a means of grace. I mean, it's, it's abs that's, that's a very good perspective there. So as a means of grace, and, and it's interesting enough, so, so Anglicanism currently has two sacraments. Well, it's other things, Anglicanism is ambiguous on it. It says there are two sacraments of the gospel, and the others that are commonly called sacraments are either uh, ways of following the apostles' teaching or corruptions of the apostles' teaching. Well, corruption, of course, the church is always uh, um, vulnerable to and has to watch out for. But, I mean, take marriage, for instance. The one thing that is actually called mysterion in the New Testament or sacrament in Latin, mysterion in Greek, is marriage in Ephesians 5.32. When Jesus sent his apostles out to preach and to heal, uh, he, they went out and anointed people with oil. Uh, St. James says in his letter, if anyone is sick, let the presbyters, the priests of the church, come and anoint them with, with oil. So obviously the sacrament of anointing the sick is, is a gospel sacrament. I mean, how can you possibly deny that? When Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared to his disciples, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, those you retain are retained. Well, that's the sacrament of ordination, you know. So I I think that Protestantism generally, and even the Anglican Church, has deprived people of the grace of those sacraments, uh, uh, or at least uh, because they're not seen as sacrament, deprived them of that particular grace which attaches to a sacrament. That's a... And it, I, don't, I get the sense that Anglican, and correct me if I'm wrong, Anglicanism is, is in a tug of war between Protestantism and Catholicism. Is that, is well, that it, the yeah. with the high and low? Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's been, uh, yeah, 500 years of that. Uh, but I think now uh, in the West and more generally, I think 
that it's not just that Protestantism is winning, but it's liberal Protestantism that's winning. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. Um, and 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 how how would you? What's your message to those Anglicans who want to make that leap of faith to join the ordinary, to cross over the Tiber, to come to communion with the the Holy Catholic Church? that are hesitant. What's your personal message to them from your experience as a former Anglican yeah, bishop? Sure. <laughs> well, um, I mean, there is a leap, uh, but um, uh, the church has always been committed, and Pope Benedict was adamant about this, uh, that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Uh, it is not a blind faith. Uh, it's a reasonable faith, and you should think through what is it that makes for continuity? Uh, where is the faith of the apostles uh, and the gospel of Jesus best preserved? Where can it be upheld in the very complex circumstances of our day? Uh, where can we find uh, safety uh, from the changes and chances of this world. I mean, those are the sorts of questions to ask uh, for people. And um, I think this will lead them uh, to the Catholic Church and to wanting to be in communion with the See of Peter. Um, this doesn't mean in any way that they give up their past, that, that has to be valued, and the fruitfulness of their Christian commitment has to be valued, but it is also to be brought to fruition, uh, to some kind of um, um, uh, climax, if, if that's the word. Um, yeah, uh, I think. Um, more and more, where Anglicans are concerned, more and more Anglicans will see uh, that the whole thing is becoming incoherent, um, that uh, different people are doing different things their own way. And uh, what we need is agreement in the basics of faith, in the living out of the Christian life, uh, in facing the opportunities and dangers of the world in which we live. And um, we need those pillars of a common teaching, uh, an adequate teaching authority of decision-making that sticks throughout the world uh, if we are going to live effectively as Christian people. And, I mean, that's beautifully said. And... I want to touch a little bit about what you're doing at the moment and uh, what positions and roles do you hold within the ordinaria and uh, what keeps you busy these days? Yes. <laughs> in a... Well, yeah, no, I'm just a simple priest in the ordinariate. Um, I don't have any positions. I continue with uh, teaching in Oxford. Uh, I do some lectures there and I also supervise some students. I'm a fellow of my college there. Um, and um, I also work to develop a theological education in churches uh, in different parts of the world which have experienced some serious persecution. 
because when that happens, it's the leadership that suffers first uh, in terms of imprisonment or exile or, or even uh, martyrdom. So um, next week, God willing, I will be in Pakistan uh, again to do some of those things. And in the Middle East or West Africa or wherever there is a need. Um, so you'll be in <clears throat> Pakistan. Um... Next week, yes, God willing, uh, to teach and to develop uh, institutions. Um, so uh, pray for that, please, if you have a moment. Um, uh, I, yes, I, I have some invitations also to teach in, in Rome in the coming year, and I look forward to that also. Excellent. And uh, I really, you know, we're definitely going to be praying for you and your your role now and the special role that you have in the church to, to, to act as a beacon of light to many people, especially those Anglicans who, who are looking towards Rome. And, um, and if we can leave with your blessing, Father. Yes, yes, of course. Well, let us pray. Let us bow our heads and let us ask God for his blessing. And I ask that all those who are watching at this time will be blessed during their Lenten preparation, in their fasting, in their praying, in their abstinence, that they may be better prepared for the coming Easter festival. And so I pray that Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will bless, preserve, and keep you now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for being with me. Thank you. Bless definitely you, George. Having you another time, Father. And, uh, and we'll definitely be praying for your important work uh, as thank acting as a bridge uh, for many people. Thank you. Please so thank, do. Thank you very much. Thank so you. For the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.